Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's C-Suite Conversations podcast with Scott Miller. That's me, your host. I'm delighted today to be joined by the CEO of Open Table, Debbie Sue, who's joining us from just south of San Francisco. Debbie, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure, Debbie. Not every week do we interview a CEO. Typically, it is someone from the C-suite because we know that our listeners and viewers around the world really enjoy understanding what was someone's path to the C-suite. Sometimes it's very linear. Sometimes it's very episodic from one industry to the next. You, of course, have some experience in the reservations industry from your time at Kayak. I'll ask you to talk about that. I know, of course, you attended both Stanford and MBA. Couldn't get into Harvard, huh? Had to phone in at Stanford and MBA? Yeah, couldn't couldn't do it. Uh, my goal in life for a while was to get the trifecta, Harvard, Stanford, and MIT on my resume. And um, thankfully, I didn't because how obnoxious is that? Uh, but I could never make it happen. No. I've applied to Harvard countless times, and I've never been accepted. Oh, those those ingrates. My brother, by the way, went and <laughs> achieved his uh, MBA at the Sloan School, so... Uh, I, awesome. I have great respect for your incomparable and impressive educational <laughs> journey. Uh, I mean all that in jest, uh, except for my respect for your journey. Debbie, take a few moments and walk <laughs> us through your, a bit of your education, your passions in life, some of your early career accomplishments that led you to now be the CEO of a, a household name. I don't know anybody who doesn't have your app on our phone, and we use it three to four times a week. You're welcome very much in the Miller household. Walk <laughs> us through your history, and we'll get into some of your own experiences. Sure. Well, I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm the only child of immigrant parents from Taiwan. Um, we came to the, the U.S. with very little and growing up, I watched my parents work really, really hard. They owned a brick-and-mortar travel agency, um, which is relevant only because I later spent so long at Kayak in the travel industry. Um, a lot of pressure growing up, I would say. I don't think my story is fantastically different from a lot of uh, immigrant families uh, from Taiwan or from China. Um, I went to Stanford for undergrad. I thought I was going to be an economics major, but fell in love with political science and sociology. So I ended up majoring in East Asian studies, much to my parents' dismay. They were like, you get we left Asia, right? <laughs> uh, I was like, I get it. But that was where my passion was. Um, I knew I wanted to be in business, but I didn't really know at the age of you know 22 what that meant. And back in the day, when you wanted to be in business, um, you either went into investment banking or you went into management consulting. Yeah. And I chose banking. Um, I did that for two years. And to your point about you know career paths not being linear, I mean it was those were a tough two years. Um, I you know I, I didn't study finance, I didn't study accounting. Uh, my first review was a summer intern uh, in banking. My my boss wrote, she doesn't seem to understand how decimal points work. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, you do. You know, it's called dot com. You're just fine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, after I finished my two years in banking, I, I, I joined Google's team um, on the strategic partnership side, business development, supporting Google Maps. And that's when I really develop, I developed a love of tech and being an operator and really being on the front lines of um, launching really incredible products. And when I looked around my team at Google after a year or two, I realized, wow, everyone above me has an MBA, so I should probably go do that, which brought me to MIT Sloan. And while I was at Sloan, um, I was a little 
dismayed that we were going you, in business school, you go on all these amazing trips and no one seems to talk about money. Um, and I was taking out massive amounts of debt to finance, you know, my education and these, these trips and just living costs. So I was looking for a part-time job uh, and stumbled upon a little startup in the Boston area called Kayak. And uh, I emailed Paul English, who was one of the co-founders and said, hey, I'm at MIT right now. I used to work at Google. I'd love to come join Kayak as an intern. And three days later, um, I was at Kayak. My desk was in between a printer and a scanner. Uh, <laughs> and my job was to drive downloads for Kayak's mobile app. We were the first uh, travel mobile app out there. I'm really dating myself here. And uh, the rest, I guess, is, as they say, is, is history. I, uh, by my second year of business school, they uh, promoted me to full-time managing the Android app. I spent time in marketing. Uh, and I spent the most time on the commercial team, which is a revenue generation team. I launched many, many sites for Kayak internationally. I was the VP of Asia Pacific. And by the time I left Kayak, I was the chief commercial officer uh, managing all revenue generating activities. Um, and I'm currently, as of two years ago, this OpenTable CEO, I joined OpenTable in the middle of uh, a global pandemic that ravaged, ravished the um, restaurant industry. Uh, so it was a very interesting um, and chaotic time to be joining a company in the hospitality space. And it's amazing that we seem to be coming out of it, fingers crossed. Um, and I'm excited to see you know, what, what the company has in store for the future. I remember, gosh, it was well over a year ago, probably a year and a half, maybe a year and a half ago, when my wife and our three sons went to our first restaurant after they were closed down. And we were so excited, as much for us as we were to spend our money for the local restaurant. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of emotional telling the yeah. story. It was an Italian restaurant, and we were as excited to actually eat in a restaurant as we were to help uh, the owner, Eduardo, right, and, and spend our money there. It's ironic that you joined that during the downturn. For those last few humans who may not yet have downloaded the Open Table app and use it, uh, reorient everyone to what is Open Table's mission? Uh, how many employees do you have? What's your, what's your passion? Sure. So Open Table's mission is to really help restaurants provide amazing hospitality. We are an online reservations system or platform. Um, we are, as you mentioned, a very much a household name when it comes to our diners and restaurants alike. And so um, instead of calling a restaurant or walking in, you would make your reservation on opentable.com or downloading our app. Um, it's the, the pandemic um, was, you know, your story of be, being so thrilled to dine at that little Italian spot in your neighborhood. Um, we saw that, you know, across the, the country. And it really helped, made me at least realize like how important restaurants are as you know bastions of our local communities, yeah. um, and how much as human beings we crave that human connection. Like I remember when the first time I, I went out after like over a year with my family to a restaurant, um, just being able to sit down, see other people, uh, just reminded me that we are social beings at heart. Um, and so in that way, it's it's really inspiring uh, to me, the type of company I run, because Open Table is all about pairing up um, ma and making possible um, those types of interactions uh, over a meal at a restaurant. Uh, in terms of our size, we're about 1,100 employees. Wow. We're a 22-year-old company. People are always surprised to hear that, that um, we're that old. Um, 
and uh, we are headquartered here in San Francisco, uh, but we have employees across the world, across the U.S. Um, and again, like I would say, the main takeaway, you know, and what what makes me so excited to, to be at the helm of a company like this is that the people I work with gen- genuinely have such a deep passion uh, for restaurateurs, for local businesses. Um, and so that passion and that heart makes my job feel like not a job often. Hmm. Well, you've won over Stephanie Miller because my wife will not allow me to make a reservation because she wants her open table points. I don't know how that works exactly, (laughs) but we're big fans. Let's talk a bit about your philosophy when it comes to culture and risk-taking. I think I've heard you say that when in an organization you have a culture of high trust, it creates a psychological level of safety that allows people to make mistakes and take risks. Where did you learn that and how is that present in your own leadership style? I think I learned that a, a few different times in my life. Um, namely, when I reflect back on my childhood, uh, my my father was very, very strict with me, um, and my mother much less so. And my dad uh, traveled back and forth to Asia for business, so half the time he, he wasn't around. And when he was around, um, I was petrified all the time. And when I was petrified, I felt like I would mess up more. Um, mm. And so when I reflect on that, you know, I, I mean, I think some being on edge a little bit, um, at least for me, is, is, is great for my performance. Um, but it's, it's counterproductive to be um, kind of on your, on your toes that much. And it, it certainly doesn't produce uh, the, the best work. It doesn't, imp- uh, it doesn't produce those aha moments or, you know, innovation, all the things that, you know, we want our employees uh, to experience and and do while while they work here. Uh, So, I mean, I learned that like from a really early age, but then as, as you know, um, you tend to, uh, I feel like there are parts of my father in me and I see it all the time as I raise my two boys now, like I'll see my dad coming out in my tone and my voice. I think if you ask my sons, they would say, mom, mommy's way scarier than daddy. And so it's something that I'm always very aware of and I have to check myself all the time on um, and, and at work too. I think sometimes um, for things that I'm really passionate about, I, I have strong opinions and I'm often telling myself to bring my energy back, right? The, the passion is great, but you want to make sure that people um feel like they can mess up and they can make a mistake, uh, right? Like I always say that the foil of success is failure. Hmm. Um, and certainly in my own life, um, you know, if you were to deem me a success, it's propped up by a whole path yes. of failure. So we yeah. have to give people the space and yeah. the safety to do that at work as well. And I think that's where the best work is is produced when people do feel like they have room to maneuver and they have space and safety to, to take risks and to, to think outside the box um, and really push the envelope. So it's something I'm very aware of. It's something that I think about all the time, um, almost hyper aware of because of how I grew up yeah. um, in the environment I grew up in. It's fascinating how our early upbringings in our families instruct our leadership styles, right? And really everything we do, not just in our own homes as parents, but at work with as leaders. You mentioned this idea of kind of, of a tense culture. Uh, Liz Wiseman, who you may know from the Bay Area, she of course was at, was at Oracle for nearly two decades and wrote two incredible books, Multipliers and Impact Players. She calls it the difference between working in a culture that's intense versus tense. 
And all that may be a cliche, there's a fine line there, is there not, between yeah. you know, creating a tense culture versus t- creating an intense culture that releases the creativity and the risk-taking and the, the uh, uh, adventure spirit, if you will, in people's genius. Uh, Debbie, let's talk about the pandemic. It, it, it's obviously a, a, still a topic of conversation. There are cities that are now bringing back mass mandates, and depending upon which TV news program you watch, you can, you know, forget the CDC or the FDA. Let's watch, you know, the news and see what's really happening. What did Open Table do in terms of your pivot and reaction to the pandemic? Do you think you were slow to pivot? Were you quite fast? What are some of the lessons that you employed in the open table culture that others might learn from and still implement going forward? I'm really proud of how we responded during the pandemic. Um, You know, I think I I mentioned before, we're a 22 year old tech company. Um, What that means is that, you know, sometimes in comparison to the upstarts in hospitality, um, or the newer companies, we can see we can we can feel like we're slower, right? But we also have the largest restaurant base, so we, um, because of our size, need to be more calculated and deliberate. And that means sometimes that we're slower. Uh, but during the pandemic, it really was all hands on deck, and we all shared and were walking and running actually towards the same mission, which was how can we help our restaurant partners get through this terrible time um, in the world, this terrible time for their business. And so we had daily, um, we called them, you know, open table leadership team calls where everyone on the exec team would dial in and we would talk about what we need to do. Um, We decided early on that we were going to waive our fees for our restaurants. So while restaurants still oftentimes have to pay their rent or their electricity bill, they did not have to pay their open table bill um, during uh, the pandemic. So I think we waived fees for over a year for our restaurant partners. Um, we sat 135 million diners um, for free for our restaurants, which is an incredible stat and something that I'm so proud of. Wow. On the product side, we pivoted really quickly, um, especially as dining started to slowly come back. If you remember during those earliest days of the pandemic, um, that first summer when things kind of started opening up a little bit, but people were still very, very frightened. It was before a vaccine was out. Um, So we launched a feature called safety precautions. So restaurants could very clearly on their restaurant profile list out all the precautions they were taking, whether that was wiping down surfaces or servers wearing masks or patrons needing to wear masks. Um, We also, when, you know, a year into the pandemic, uh, when some cities were mandating that uh, patrons needed to show uh, vaccination status, we launched a series of features within Open Tables product on the restaurant side to help restaurateurs navigate that. Um, if you can imagine, right, like a restaurant's trying to provide amazing hospitality, asking a, a diner for their vaccine card doesn't necessarily fall into providing amazing hospitality. And so for, for our part, you know, we spoke to a lot of our restaurants. They're like, you have to help us do this. Like, what's a more elegant, efficient way? Uh, of doing this. And so we listened to, you know, our partners and our clients and our customers and came up with a slew of features to help with that as well. Um, So we've done a lot here that I'm incredibly proud of. I mean, later in the pandemic, when dining really started coming back, we launched marketing campaigns, um, educating our diners on how disruptive and terrible it is to uh, have a reservation and just no show, right? Just, you know, it's, we make it really easy on open table to cancel your reservation. 
no showing for a reservation, um, a few of those a night could be the difference between right. a restaurant making a profit yes, yeah. or losing money on any given night. Yeah. So we've done a lot and I, I feel really, really good about what we've done during this time. It's a great story. I appreciate you doing a little bit of a brag there because I think it's endearing <laughs> for consumers, customers to understand that your business has a heart. You're not just there only to make a profit. You are there for the success of your customers, for the end user, that your philanthropy as an organization and helping make sure that the restaurants are there when the pandemic came back is palpable. It's so endearing. We interviewed recently the CEO of Panera Brands that owns mm -hmm. Panera and Caribou Coffee and Noah Bagels and Einstein's, and they repurposed tens of thousands of their restaurant workers in other industries, I think it was Walmart or QVC or somewhere, not QVC, CVS, and they had found temporary jobs for them and then brought them back. And it was a focus that uh, they were just um, dedicated, right? They were passionate about making sure that their employees were taken care of and you the same and for your customers. So it's redeeming and so exciting to hear the humanity that comes with your organization's mission. Uh, I wanna pivot slightly off that and talk about your own journey. Uh, as an Asian-American woman of Taiwanese-American descent and as a woman in the C-suite, I'm guessing you found more Asian-Americans and women at Stanford and MIT than perhaps you do in the C-suite. I mean that not to be a generalization, but probably an accurate fact. What has been your experience? Very accurate. <laughs> yeah, th thank you for that. My intent was to be um, respectful. What's been your experience as an Asian-American high performer, as a CEO of a company, no doubt you will probably go on through the future of your career to have other high profile roles. What would you like for people like me, Caucasian men for that matter in America to know about your journey and maybe even share some of the prejudices that you've experienced that the more we are aware of, the more we can be uh, aware of our own unconscious biases and our prejudices and be more inclusive and more supportive, more respectful. Sure. Uh, I think the, the, you know, to answer, there was a, a lot there, there was, um, yes. but <laughs> you get a lot with um, me, Debbie. It's just, it's, it is a pack of life <laughs> in terms of, you know, what, what we all can do, um, to make those in the room who are not necessarily the majority feel more comfortable, um, or feel like they belong, um, is I think that this notion of allyship is is really really key, and I'm I'm married to a, a white man, so Dave and I talk about this all the time, and our sons are biracial. Uh, one of our sons looks very white, and the other son looks very very Asian, um, and so it, we, race is a topic we talk about a lot at home. It's it's a topic that I talk about at at work as well, and as I think you know as a leader. Um, it's my responsibility as a leader and then especially as a woman of color um, to talk about it. They're uncomfortable, these discussions. Are, they're hairy. Uh, they're complex. They're really packed. Um, but I think it's, it's my responsibility to, to bring it to my leadership team when things happen um, across the company and they happen at Open Table, as I'm sure they happen across many, many different companies in the U.S. Um, I think it's important that we lay it all out and discuss it. Um, if training needs to happen, let's bring in um, trainers to, to, to help us, right? To help us um, see past our blind spots, to help us um, overcome our prejudices. Um, personally, um, I, I don't know. I feel like at work in my career, 
Um, I've always had uh, armor that I can don in terms of um, the KPIs that I've met or my background uh, educationally or the fact that I'm really good at my job. Um, it's, it's really in the personal realm that I've struggled more hmm. uh, in terms of my race and my gender. Uh, we lived in New Hampshire for a few years. We still have a house out there. Um, New Hampshire is one of the least racially diverse states in the U.S. <laughs> um, and it's, it was, it's a beautiful, wonderful place, and our neighbors are wonderful. But there are moments there in the supermarket, um, you know, when I've, especially during COVID, um, when I didn't get the most welcome response. Or even, you know, when nothing's happening, um, no one's looking at me, and, but I walk into a, you know, New England restaurant by myself, and I'm always relieved when Dave walks in behind me as if his presence there yeah. kind of justifies my own, yeah. right? And that's in yeah. my head. I don't, you know, like Dave yeah. always says, no one's looking at you, Debbie. And I was like, yeah, but it's really weird to be the only non-white person sure. in this room. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it, it, it comes up all the time. Um, I was recently, I was at Stanford um, Business School uh, two nights ago, um, giving a talk to their Asian Business Association. Uh, and, you know, the theme of the night was Asian success. <laughs> and I kind of like toyed around with that phrase, like, what does Asian success mean? Like, is it different than success? And, you know, the more I thought about that, like, the more I have com come to the conclusion that like my success, if we can call it that, is, is uniquely distinctly Asian because you can't separate me and my consciousness from being Asian. Uh, so it is something I think about all the time. I, I wish there were more uh, Asian American women CEOs out there. There are, oh, a few. Um, I think most of us know one another. Uh, but I also recognize that um, this status quo will not remain so that representation matters and the fact that I'm in the seat, the fact that Katrina Lake is, you know, is the chairwoman at Stitch Fix, the fact that Deb Blue is the CEO of Ancestry.com and so on and so forth. There are ripple effects to that, right? And we'll see the ramifications and implications of that quickly, I think. You're going to see more Asian American CEOs, Asian American women CEOs, because you're seeing a few now. Um, and so that in itself makes me really proud and makes me very hopeful about our future. You know, on that point, just last night, I had dinner here in Salt Lake City with Ann Chow, who is the CEO of AT&T Business. And like you, is a you know, Taiwanese-American and has had a phenomenal career in education. And we talk a lot about her, her life in business. She, like you, is married to a white man and has two daughters that are in college. And she, of course, has had some remarkable Remarkably, um, and remarkable in a, in a de minimis you know, aspect, prejudices in her career. Do you think it's improving? Is it getting better? And I ask this because I'm the father of three young sons with my wife. Uh, they are 7, 10, and 11. And I feel like my boys see color dramatically less than I do. I mean, when I was raised in Florida, you were either black or you were white. And that's you know, kind of the main two lenses through which you saw people. I noticed my youngest son on television was talking about um, a sports player and referred to him as the brown gentleman. And I kind of loved that because although my sons don't, I don't think they have nearly the prejudices of my generation. They see this broad spectrum of skin color and they see nuances in a positive way. 
Do you feel like this issue is going to resolve itself just generationally? Will 20 years from now, the older generation be out of the workforce and a younger generation will come in like my children that are more blind to race and to to, um, gender issues? Where do you see the future going on this? I actually think, uh, and I think uh, the the example you cited for your son is, is, is a great one. Not that future generations will be more blind. And I don't think we're actually, you know, teaching that. I actually think we're we're teaching our kids to to be aware yeah. of race, that, you know, there are different people from coming from, you know, different backgrounds that look different. Um, and that it's not, uh, we're not blind to it, that these differences exist. And it's great that these differences exist, that people are different. And that makes the world and conversations and interactions uh, much more interesting and and much richer. And so I think this next generation coming up has been kind of brewing in that type of environment. Um, And the racial makeup of this country is is shifting quickly and dramatically as well, right? Where when our our kids are adults, um, it will be very different than when you and I we're, we're, we're growing up. The That's country right. will look different, yeah. uh, even in states that you wouldn't necessarily have thought so, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so I, I do think there's a lot of hope. I'm not sure it'll just happen naturally. Um, I, again, you know, I, I started this this line, um, this topic of the conversations are, are tough. They're uncomfortable. The work is hard. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the work that this generation does, uh, our generation on this front, um, will pay dividends later on um, for our children and our children's children. Um, but I, I'm not sure it'll happen naturally. Um, I think there, there does need to be uh, conscious work done on this. Uh, but I do see it moving in a more positive direction. Yes. Debbie, I think it's so well said. It is furry. It is difficult. It is awkward. You're going to say the wrong thing. Like when I took when I took the liberty of talking about you know Asian Americans in Stanford and in MIT, some people might think that I was profiling or that I was you know um, making generalizations. You're not going to get it right. I'm going to I'm going to rarely get it right, but I'm going to I'm going to get it better each time. Right? As long as I'm improving, I think I deserve a little bit of latitude or pre-forgiveness, if you will, as as a white male raised, obviously, in an upper-middle-class family in the 70s, my experience now as a father is very different mm-hmm. than what my father's experience was. So yep. I think, what, I think the, the biggest point that I'm reinforcing from what you've said is that just recognizing that it is tough, it is awkward, it is not an elegant conversation. We're going to say yes. the wrong thing. We're going to phrase our question a little uh, uh, more tentatively the more we become comfortable talking about it, naturally we're all going to become more respectful and more aware and that your journey becomes more relatable to me. My empathy grows. My respect grows. Yeah. I think that's a great way that that I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, I just repeated what you said. That's all. So um, (laughs) uh, I'm mindful of our time. I I respect that you're running a large organization and it's almost dinner time. So I'm guessing Open Table is heating up. Talk to the person who wants to follow your career. I mean, your career is remarkable. It's, your success is, is indisputable and no doubt will be for the rest of your career. What advice would you give to someone who thinks they want to 
chase the C-suite, whether it's CFO or COO or CMO or CIO or CSO or CRO, there's no number of limits there. What are some of the competencies that you would look for when you're potentially filling a seat at the executive team at Open Table? Give us three or four of them. Sure, I, uh, that's a big question. Um, the one piece of advice I would say for folks you, you know, starting out in their career, so when I say starting out the first 10 years of your career, um, I, I truly believe there are no wrong turns. Uh, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I used to agonize over like, what product should I support? What company should I go work for? What school should I attend? Um, and, you know, I think, and, you know, there are, there are lots of times where I didn't get my way. I mean, we talked about Harvard. Um, there are, you know, when I went to Google, I, I didn't want to be supporting Google Maps. I, you know, could barely read a map. Uh, and I, you know, I would used to really stress out about, you know, those, like, oh, am I making the right decision? And now in my older age, hopefully wiser age, um, I'm realizing, and I truly believe that early on, there really are no wrong turns. Every experience is accretive and additive. Mm. Um, and I think if you approach your career that way, um, that attitude will take you very, very far. In terms of now, like what do I look for in executives um, on my own team? Uh, it's a couple of different things. The, fir the first one is uh, people who have a high level of um, intellectual uh, capacity um, who, are, who, are, who are smart, but in different ways, right? I, I'm smart in certain ways. I'm really not smart in others. So I look for others who can um, round out that, that skill set for me. Um, that's one thing. Uh, others, another thing is um, people who have a, a pensions for action, uh, you know, so doers, uh, more doers, less talkers. I would say, and you know, here my Sloan education um, has really served me well. MIT's uh, motto is mens et montus, uh, mind and hands. So you're not just talking about it, but you're doing it. Um, I think the third one would be people who have a, a high level of empathy um, or heart. You mentioned heart, uh, passion, people who really care. <laughs> Um, tend to do uh, really well uh, with me because I really, really care. Um, you know, even before I was the CEO of OpenTable for the companies that I, I worked for, um, I worked as if I was an owner, right? Like I, I was the person at Google um, flying, you know, coach at the, at the back of the, the plane because I wanted to I don't know, save money for the company. And people looked at me like I was crazy. Like Google makes a lot of money. Like why, you know? And I don't know, I've always had that ownership mentality and I love it when people who I work with have that as well. Cause I feel like that, that tends to mean that we're making the right decisions for the company. Um, I just listed off three or four. I mean, I could go on, no, it's but great. I think those are probably no, the main ones. No, those were really exciting. As I was listening to you, I was thinking about Joel Peterson, who you may know, of course, as a, uh, a Stanford business professor, a friend of ours, guest on our program. And he talks a lot about how important it is for an entrepreneurial leader, even inside of a company, to recognize their own strengths and weaknesses and to complement the team around them. And you mentioned that exact answer you know, in your response. Let's end with this. How has the pandemic changed you as a parent, as a leader, as a spouse, as a 
uh, as a daughter, as a citizen? How are you different? I think as a as a parent, it has changed me in that I've just, I'm a much more present parent. Uh, when Stephen was born, so he's three and a half now. Uh, but when he was born, I went back to work after six weeks, and I was pretty much on the road um, three out of four weeks right after I went back until COVID hit. And uh, at the start of COVID, right, as we went on year one, year two, it's the longest, I think, in my life that I've gone uh, without frequent travel, work travel. And so what that has meant for Stephen is that I'm, I'm always there. I'm doing bath time. I'm doing bedtime. Um, and that was not necessarily the case um, before the pandemic. I gave birth and was pregnant for my, to my second son, Theo, uh, during the pandemic. Um, in general, I would say for my family life, um, COVID, you asked, you said like a daughter, like it's made me, um, much more conscious, uh, of the role that I play in my family and much more grateful, I would say, um, for the time that I get to spend with my sons, with my parents, with my husband, um, those connections, uh, we, in the middle of the pandemic a year ago, decided that we were going to go. Uh, to Taiwan because my parents were there. I hadn't seen them for a year, uh, which is the longest time in my life that I haven't seen them. Uh, and we, we did the whole thing. There's like a 14 day quarantine. I mean, you know, you're just flying with, it was, it was, it was hard, yes. um, but it was worth it. Right. And so really making sure that I'm prioritizing and setting time aside uh, for, for those in my life um, that I love um, that's COVID has helped me see that on the professional front. Um, a lot. I mean, COVID's opened my eyes and changed me in a lot of ways. Work fundamentally uh, is different than it was pre-pandemic. Um, I think it would be silly to think that we're going to go back to how it was, right? Whether that's working from the office five days a week. I think those days might, might be gone, um, right? There's uh, employees uh, expect and demand a certain level of flexibility. They want to be treated like adults. And so for me, um, it's been very interesting to, to navigate that, uh, but also kind of inspiring because right now we get to reimagine what the future of work looks like, right? Like we kind of get to write our own rules here uh, instead of you know doing it the way we've always done it. And so professionally, I think as, as harrowing as the pandemic was for our PL, for our restaurants, um, there's opportunity in it as well. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, it's as leaders, it's important for us to, to realize opp opportunities, capitalize them on them um, and figure out how we can do it better than, you know, before COVID. That was a masterclass in post-COVID business culture. <laughs> Nicely said. Debbie Sue, CEO of um, Open Table. Thanks for investing in our listeners and our viewers today. The... Um, the uh, admissions team at Harvard is worse off from having missed <laughs> you, but uh, no doubt they will invite you someday as their commencement speaker, and it will go viral on YouTube. Hey, thanks for your time today. We appreciate today's conversation. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us today, and we'll see you back next week for a new guest from the C-Suite. <laughs>